Hello, I'm Letitia, founder of personal coaching company Looper, and this is the New Leaf podcast. New Leaf explores the practical, emotional, and sometimes messy side of getting back to work after having had a baby, but with a particular focus on pre and post baby identity. In each episode, I interview incredible ladies and sometimes the odd bloke to find out quite how they manage their returns together with their challenges and vulnerabilities. In the age where the pressure for female perfection and having it all has never been higher, welcome to New Leaf. Follow the podcast on Instagram at, at newleafpodcast to find out more and follow me at loopergrowth to find out about my prenatal and postnatal mama coaching program. So this episode was a really interesting one that gave me a lot of food for thought. Laura Wright, my mezzo-soprano singer guest, was unbelievably eloquent, thoughtful and conscientious and when I started the conversation I really hadn't known at all that we would be going into the throes of some of her own dark moments following the birth of her daughter. She talks graciously about her postnatal depression, a really brave thing to do, especially in the UK where we're still learning to be a little bit more open about mental health and also postnatal health, full stop. And this really is a theme throughout this episode. For any non-baby listeners, there is a period following your birth known as the fourth trimester. In other words, the three months following the birth of your baby. Depending on your circumstances and your physical state following the birth, as obviously this is an extremely individual thing for people, it can be daunting emotionally and physically without the right support. And I want to take a little bit of time in this introduction to really stress and press that there are definitely some areas that we can do better on as a society. There are real gaps in postnatal, physical and mental support and I was acutely aware that Laura and I were in very fortunate positions where we had access to resources to assist us in our physical recoveries, whereas so many women in the UK and in other countries do not. My NCT friends and I discussed this at length, that prenatally the British NHS are on the whole very good and extremely attentive, but that there is a significant and noticeable drop-off in support the moment that you leave hospital, and Sadly, in my view, a structural sexism that means that GPs simply aren't given adequate training to deal with some of the complexities that women encounter postnatally. This can have a really huge effect on our health. The more that we are aware of this, the more that we can challenge our healthcare systems, but also support our friends going through this and point them to the right resources. Laura and I also talk a lot about the sometimes lethal cocktail of social media and motherhood with her own added tricky ingredient of life in the public eye, where already emotionally vulnerable, sleep deprived and going through the major adjustment to your life that is motherhood, it was, quote, very difficult to navigate emotionally, unquote. There is more awareness today with news stories and documentaries emerging revealing how social media algorithms can fundamentally affect us. Governments are putting massive resources into stemming the flow of misinformation and fake news because of the huge emotions generated in us that influence our choices, often in ways that we aren't even aware of. And no, it's not all about emotions regarding elections and politics. Algorithms are designed to make our social media pages echo chambers. It encourages us to use the app and stay hooked, essentially. And when in our middle of the night, hair everywhere, monotony of motherhood, we guiltily look at perfect looking images of other women in beautiful locations or other mothers without a hair out of place and squeaky clean children who eat and sleep perfectly, When we like or engage with these posts, our news feeds and explore feeds on Instagram and Facebook very quickly pick up on our choices, becoming halls of mirrors of perfection that can make us feel lonely, inadequate and like everyone else has got it sorted. Of course, they don't. But it really made me feel for Laura and other women in the media or in the spotlight where image is still valued so highly and it almost requires a whole other podcast to talk about her point where storylines in the arts rarely write pregnant women or mothers into their plot lines in a strong or unique way. And so these opportunities are few for the women in the arts in those positions in their real lives due to this lack of representation. 
This is starting to change and will change more the more we are aware of this underrepresentation. So I challenge you to challenge other people when we comment on women's bodies during pregnancy or post babies who are in the spotlight. Kate Middleton in that dress with her so-called bump just hours after giving birth to Prince George is a case in point. Anyway, I will shut up now and get on with the episode, but I hope this gives you a lot of food for thought too, especially when it comes to the highly addictive, bright and shiny Instagram and our other social media. It certainly made me think a lot, so I really hope you enjoy this episode with the lovely Laura. So my next guest I am extremely excited for. She's a mezzo-soprano singer and no stranger to performing at high-profile events and broadcasting live to millions of people. She won BBC Chorus of the Year in 2005, and having read her bio to make this bio, she doesn't seem to have stopped since. She's written and performed for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and the Duke of Edinburgh, which is a little bit much for me as a mad royalist. She's also performed at the London Olympic Stadium, the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, the Dodger Stadium in LA, the O2, Westminster Abbey, 10 Downing Street, and even the Great Wall of China. You get the picture. She's a regular performer at major sporting events such as the Six Nations, the NFL Series and the Grand National, as well as singing at the Rugby World Cup, Ascot, the FA Cup Final and the British Grand Prix. She dedicates a huge amount of time to charity, being ambassadors for multiple places including Sports Aid and Place to Be, which supports children's mental health. During the height of COVID lockdown, thanks to the assistance of various national charities, Laura made over 100 video calls to vulnerable members of the public who lived in isolation, who needed to chat, to sing, and or just listen to a song and be sung to. She's also a presenter on Songs of Praise, a massive guilty pleasure of mine. So I am super excited to introduce Laura Wright. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. That was like the nicest introduction I think I've ever had in my life. Well, as I said, it was it was a great pleasure of mine to read it because then it just got me even more excited about interviewing you. So tell me, where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? Just describe your surroundings. So I'm at home. Um, for me, that's southwest London, uh, near, kind of nearish Wimbledon. And I can look out the window and I can see lots of trees and my concrete jungle garden and lots of boxes because we are in the midst of moving house at the moment. So there's a sort of an organized madness, I'd say. <laughs> the moving house thing, as many people will know, it feels like it just goes on and on forever. So you're not quite sure when to start packing boxes. And obviously having a, a child as well, you can't pack really until the last minute. Everything's a hazard. So we're just embracing the madness, shall we say. I like your sentence, everything's a hazard. I mean, if that doesn't <laughs> sum up toddler life, I'm not sure what does. So you mentioned your toddler. Tell me about your immediate family unit. So at the moment, there's myself, uh, my husband, who's called Harry, and our daughter, Ottilie, who's uh, nearly 10 months old. So she's not crawling or walking, but she's excited, I think, by exploring lots of new things, putting everything in the mouth. She loves her food, which I have to say is amazing. And so we were chatting a little bit earlier about sort of sleep. And I think we're really lucky with how she does in that department as well. So we're kind of just loving life and every day is a bit new every day is a bit of an adventure at the moment but I definitely feel we've sort of settled into the swing of things now and looking forward to that kind of year mark which I think is also like more of a celebration for me and Harry than her at the moment yes (laughs) yes we got there (laughs) it is it is having passed that myself it was like yeah we made it we've got this everyone's still alive which is great (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) Okay, we mentioned that you're a singer. You were obviously singing pre-baby, but tell me about your life before Ottilie came along. Yeah, so I suppose a little bit about Harry and I. We've been together for about, I think, six or seven years. We moved in together quite quickly. We have had a dog for five and a half of those six, seven years. And we've known that we wanted to have a family. I think like lots of people weren't quite sure when the right time is. I think you talk about it and talk about it and actually there's no real perfect time and and I think for me I was always quite protective of my career so you know before having a baby I was very very driven about where I wanted my career to go I've been signed to a record label since I was 15 so I kind of haven't really known anything else other than sort of go 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 but also 
I've never really known a sense of routine. So before Otterley, it was kind of every day was different. I had the ability to sort of go wherever I needed to go for work. And and Harry's always been really respectful of that. He used to play professional rugby and I obviously sing at a lot of sporting events. That's kind of how we cross paths. And yeah, we've both just been kind of doing our thing. And then we decided to try for a baby quite shortly after we got married, which was 2018. Oh, that's super exciting. And how did you meet? Because I mean, you said it was at sporting events. How did it happen? It was quite funny. Well, I say it's funny for me. I think it's more embarrassing for Harry, but he's not here, (laughs) so that's fine. (laughs) So I used to play rugby as well as singing at the rugby. I've always been mad about sport and I have three older brothers. So I kind of was always like, I need to prove myself and always loved sport and exercise at school as well. So I started looking for a rugby club. I ended up finding one at Roslyn Park, uh, again in southwest London. And when I went there, I think I was going there for like a physio appointment or something. Anyway, I was kind of hanging around and the door was locked to the changing room and there were some people training, someone doing like personal training on the pitch. And I was like, oh, it's a nice pair of legs. And then <laughs> and then he came over and this was obviously Harry and he was like, oh, you're right there. And I was like, the casual kind of, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, actually. Even though the door was locked, I obviously was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but sort of styled it out. And basically, there were a few awkward meetings like that before I kind of, I feel, it feels very old now as well in the days of when we use Facebook Messenger as a chat up line. That's where I got hold of him. <laughs> it wasn't like MSN Messenger or anything like that long ago. But yeah, so it feels very old school to say that I chatted him up on Facebook. <laughs> it's like the old school equivalent of sliding into his DMs. But basically, yeah, it's just not quite as glamorous. I love um, it. I love that that sounds so old. I um, know, and it's not even that old. Tell me it's not that old. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Don't worry. Don't worry. You're good. Um, okay. So you said Harry used to play professional rugby. What does he do now? Lots of people at the moment have had to adapt what their job is according to what we've been allowed to do because of COVID. And he was doing a lot of personal training. He taught Pilates and he kind of moved into mobility training and he did that because he suffered a lot of injuries through his playing career he broke his back three times he had a full knee reconstruction and and I think as many other kind of people who watch the sport of rugby or play it will know it's so physical as a game so for him he found a lot of help and support through that way of training so he now teaches that to other people and he's managed amazingly to do that from home over the past sort of five six months and he's actually now starting an online mobility business so I think for all of us there's been these little silver linings of lockdown and for him it's been creating a bit of an online community so I'm really proud of him actually for carrying on and doing that while we've had a a tiny baby in the house as well. That's amazing. Yeah, he's um he's done really well. And like I say, I think for me, it's been nice chatting to people about all of their different silver linings. And it's great, as you mentioned in the, at the start as well, you know, what I was doing with the, a WhatsApp video call to someone who lived on their own, just being able to connect with people. That was really special for us both. I think that's something we have in common. So take me back then. How was your pregnancy? I mean, you were in the midst of this super high, high powered, incredible career. And you made that decision to have a baby. I mean, forgive my ignorance. I don't even know how this works. Is that something that in your industry you'd like run by people? At the time, I I think what I'd seen from the outside of other people in my industry having a family, again, I think I made the mistake of thinking, oh, that looks quite nice, doesn't it? <laughs> like that, you know, everyone looks very happy and And oh, it seemed like that happened very quickly. And I think when you're looking from the outside, time can pass very quickly when you look at other people's situations. And so for me, I knew I wanted a family. I knew I didn't want to leave it another four or five years. I think this might sound quite strange, but I'm quite competitive as a person. And I think that kind of came into it as well. I was like, yeah, we're married and what's the next step? And I think also everyone starts asking you those questions. It's like if you're together with someone, when are you going to get engaged? And there's this sort of, I suppose, still quite traditional way of thinking about the next step and what happens next with your relationship and family life. A big part of that also was that I, it sounds again, very strange, but I think one of my driving factors was that I knew Harry really wanted a family. And I knew that was something that, you know, we could create together and that, and that did really excite me. And 
And I didn't really run that by a, a management team or, you know, I, I was quite protective actually about us making that decision. It was just us having a conversation and we were quite realistic and we said, you don't know how long it's going to take, do you? That's also probably a conversation lots of people have. And you think, oh, this might take us a lot longer. We might be lucky. We might be unlucky. We don't know. And then obviously <laughs> we, were, we were very lucky and got pregnant quite quickly. And I think that was where I then had to think about how's this going to fit in? And I think I was a little bit naive, to be honest, in the sense that I thought, well, nothing will change. I think that was a positive thing at the time for me, because I just kind of went 100% full force into carrying on working. I planned gigs right up until, in fact, I missed three gigs because I went into labor because she arrived early. And I planned gigs right up until the last moment I possibly could. But I, I did notice a kind of shift in, I'd say, just people's perception of me standing on stage you know with or without a bump I think it did change but I think because it was my first baby I kind of just was like well whatever let's get on with it and keep working so that was kind of my mindset. You mentioned your schedule and the fact that you worked right up until you're in labor it's such a myth that they don't arrive early because my son arrived early. Yeah, especially with your first. I remember I went to one of my midwife appointments and then they did like an extra scan. And obviously anything out of the ordinary, you're like, oh God, something's wrong. You think as your pregnancy kind of goes along as well, there's this sort of protectiveness. For example, in the first six, seven months, I didn't, I didn't even wear like a badge on the tube. I, I don't know what it was. I think I kind of almost didn't want to, uh, not admit, but like, except that that was happening and not not in a negative way I just was kind of bumbling along quite happily and yes I'd felt really sick at the start and yes I'd had weird things that I wanted to eat I just wanted to eat croissants like day in day out but who doesn't want to eat croissants day I mean, in yeah. day out anyway <laughs> like I mean that's not the worst thing is it I I ran the marathon when I'd found out I was pregnant so I was about four weeks and I had the marathon in about a week and I was like well I'm just going to have to do it because it was for a charity. And I think Harry was more worried than I was. And I was like, I kept just telling myself, your body is meant to do this. You know, the, mm. the woman's body is an incredible thing. It's designed to do this. It can do it. And you've been lucky enough to get pregnant and, and just embrace it and trust that your body will be okay. And I, I don't know why. I just tried to keep myself positive that way. That's so funny, isn't it? It's almost like hypnobirthing, but hypnopregnancy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm someone who would have been so kind of against that way of thinking. And actually, now I think about it, that's basically what I was doing to myself in a funny way. You're right. Yeah. And do you remember the moment where you spoke to your management and were like, surprise? Did you wait for a particular moment or what, <laughs> so, what happened? I told, so I told my two, so I have two managers, one's a woman, one's a man. And I had to tell them both. And I have never sweated so much in my life. And I basically, I don't know if I, this is the right, I basically, I, I didn't tell them the first time. So I kind of whisked out. I, I went along and had this kind of thing in my head and, and I just didn't say anything. That's how nervous I was. I was so nervous of the reaction I would get, the... I don't know, just, I just didn't know what to expect. And, and doesn't that show in itself? What I was expecting was a, oh, well, that's it for you, love. That's literally what was going on in my mind. And whether I was wrong to think that or not, when I did actually manage on like the second or third meeting with each of them to tell them, and I told them separately, they were delighted. And it was the best feeling because they were like, this is amazing. And I think it was my own fault for thinking they would be, you know, because actually they have families and they know how incredible it is and how amazing something like that is to happen in your life whenever it does happen. So I think I was slightly wrong in thinking that there would be a negative response or not a negative response, but something that I would question. Um, then it was kind of more after that about, right, how do we do this and how do we approach this and what's right for you and for baby kind of thing. And I mean, you say it, it was your fault, but it, is it your fault? I mean, that perception has got to come from somewhere, those nerves. I mean, you've been in the industry for, what, 16 years now. That's a long time. So I don't think that was your fault. Yeah, I, thanks. <laughs> well, I, I suppose I could eulogize about where it comes from. And I think I talk about this all the time to my friends and to my family about social media presence and pressures that you can feel. And 
I know when I was much younger in terms of record companies, they would quite often say, you know, well, be careful about having one too many of that, you know, to eat. So there's always a, an emphasis on your image. And I always knew that was an important thing. And I suppose my outlet for finding a way to feel good about myself was always through exercise. So for me, the concern was that I wouldn't be able to do as much as I could when I was pregnant. Of course, it's not unfounded to feel like that. It has to have come from somewhere. And I think on social media, your world can become very small with algorithms and with all those kind of things. And I think also we all are guilty of portraying the best bits. And sometimes, you know, you can think that that's all there is and you don't see the other side of it. Equally, I think now people are showing the other side of it a lot more, but sometimes it's, it feels staged as well. So I think it's, it's really difficult to navigate. And I'm not saying I know how to do that at all. I'm a complete novice in that sense. But I, I do think it's quite a difficult space to navigate for anyone, especially someone with a big profile. Absolutely. Our generation, late 20s, early to mid 30s, is very much an Instagram generation. Nobody really goes on Facebook anymore. We're a bit too old for Snapchat and TikTok. And Instagram is it is a life of squares and it's all one image at a time. And it, I almost think it's it's the worst form in that way for just showing one picture and expecting people just to make a completely accurate assumption. I think people make huge assumptions from that one picture that could have been edited, that could have been taken at a different time, that it's just crazy. Definitely, definitely. You're so right. For a, a period of time, I spent so long writing those captions and I would write really lengthy captions. And, and my husband and I talk about this a lot because he, like I've mentioned, being online as well, he has to create his own community and space in that world. And I'd say for me, I often have this discussion slash argument with him that let's face it, if I put up a picture of me performing and I'm in a dress and it, it isn't even, I'd say, overtly sexy in that way, but it's the fact that it, it looks glamorized in some shape or form. I, I could write, you know, something completely irrelevant below. And I feel like that's, that's where we're at with it. It's become so editorial Instagram as a place. And and I think there are some people out there who are fighting really hard for it not to be. But as you say, at the end of the day, the image is the first thing you see. And I think that is the same for most social media platforms. And I'm not saying again, that that's a bad thing. I just think that it's difficult. And especially if you're someone who is a first time mum, or you're pregnant at that time, or you're going through a lot like I and so many others have been when you've had a baby. It's quite a scary place and I salute anyone who is open with what they go through because I think it's an amazing thing to sort of open yourself up and I really praise people who do that and who are strong enough to do that but I also think we have to look after our own mental health and our own well-being at the same time if that makes sense. I mean it makes perfect sense and it's funny because as you were speaking I was thinking that the facade that you talked about there's so many parallels with the entertainment industry and the fact that it is so much about image. And I've got a few disillusioned actor friends who've left the industry and have said that a healthy dose of cynicism in here from them, but you realise that it's not necessarily about how good at acting you are. It's how do you look from this angle? How do you look from this angle? Are you the right face that they're looking for, for whatever it is? And all that training, all that art and craft that you put into it. And still such a huge portion of why people hire you or select you is because of what you look like and how difficult that was for them to manage. So I'm not surprised that something like having a baby would just be like a big bomb in that space, for want of a better word. Because especially if you've been doing this since you were 15, that must be quite a big thing. It's impossible, in fact. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is impossible. And I think that's where for a short while as well, and I am I said to myself before we were chatting today as well, I think it's really important to be as honest as you can be when you're talking about these things. And I remember, so I wanted to go kind of straight back to work, which again was kind of this, um, I don't know, in my mind, this lovely kind of image that I'd be able to bring her with me to work and it'd be so lovely and do your sound check and she won't cry you know, all that kind of stuff and um, dealing with that and trying to breastfeed and trying to do what's right, trying to express enough so that Harry could give her a boss, try, just trying to do it all. And 
I remember going to a gig and I and I put a picture up on my Instagram before I was about to perform and I look back at that and I just look really unhappy. I can see it in my face. And I think actually for me, it's really important because I can look at that and go, you probably weren't ready and you were probably trying to prove something, but who were you trying to prove it to? Were you trying to prove it to everyone else or yourself? Because actually what's most important, and that's what I think I've realized over these first sort of nine, 10 months, that me my husband and my daughter and our dog Rocky but they are what's most important to me and actually the happier I feel within that I think that shows on the outside and I suppose in a funny way I feel lucky that in this time where I've lost all my work let's be honest as well I haven't had a performance every performance I've had this year has been cancelled so I've been forced to look even more inward about what is it that genuinely makes me happy? What is it that I'm passionate about? What is it? Why is it that all those people who are your friends, who are actors, why did they start doing what they wanted to do as a career? Because they were so passionate about it because they wanted to create something. They wanted to find whatever it was in a, in a program, in a film, in a theater. They wanted to play that role and they wanted to do it to the best of their ability. And sadly, all of these outward things have come in and, and warped whatever that is. And I think mm. as we as we get older in the industry, this time away from it has been a blessing in a way because it gives you that perspective to go, hang on, just slow down. You don't have to feel like you are sprinting and trying to keep up with everyone because guaranteed everyone else is probably feeling quite similar and in the same boat, especially in that industry. It's a minefield. It really is. And I think when you're very new mum, I was just emotionally, you are going through so much and you're clawing at books or podcasts or people or family. And there are so many different opinions. And I just think that you'll find those people who are your people. And they'll probably be the ones who tell you, just do whatever feels right for you. You're doing an amazing job. And I just think that is the most important thing to hear when you're in the midst of that. I just don't even know what's going on. I mean, I don't even think I can remember the first few months. Can you? It, it is just, it's so mad for everybody, isn't it? And I, I echo so much of what you've said, and I've said it on other episodes as well. I, I just wish, and for anybody who's out there, by the way, who's a new mum who is listening to this and is dealing with in-laws or the perfect NCT friend that you've got, whose baby seems to be perfect, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> there is no handbook. There's no handbook and do whatever you want, like, because that is best for your baby. Because if it's best for you, it's best for your baby. And by the way, all the advice is going to change in five years anyway. <laughs> yes, that's so true. That is so true. God, yeah. really good point. So you're, you know, you're battling with an ever-changing world and society. I think you're so right. It, honestly, it makes me get so emotional about it. I also think that's something I cry at absolutely everything now. <laughs> like, oh, bless you. <laughs> so, so, does, so does Harry as well. Like we'll be those people at every single Christmas advert will be like, oh, it's just too much. It's too much. <laughs> um, oh, but you're, you're so right. It is. It's very confusing. And I think, yeah, doing what's, what feels right for you and your, your instinct, you know, at the end of the day, your instinct is often right. Oh, 100%. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I heard was, maybe you heard this as well, it's like trust your brains when it comes to pregnancy and your birth. It's like an acronym. So B is for what's the benefit. Then it's like, what are the risks? What are the alternatives? What does your instinct tell you? What happens if we do nothing? And then finally, what does the science say? And like for every question to do with your pregnancy or your birth, just tap through that checklist that. that's so good and I found it really helpful because you're looking to yourself and science but you're not asking for any other opinion which is often the opinions that confuse you right yeah definitely was there any specific advice that you've ignored versus advice that you found helpful the advice that I didn't ignore but should have ignored was um I remember a couple of days after giving birth when your milk comes in and I did walk around with cabbage leaves on my tits and <laughs> <laughs> which did absolutely nothing I mean come on <laughs> I just looked like a weirdo you know wandering around being like it's cool I'm all good here don't, don't worry about it guys I also found that frustrating that no one talked about that more because oh yeah 
I don't know why it felt like it was skipped over. We did the the NCT kind of course thing. And actually as well, I, being totally honest, I got nothing from the breastfeeding thing. I just, I just didn't really take anything from it. It was so not glamorized, but like, oh, it will be perfect and this will happen and da da da. And there was just nothing about what actually happens to your body. It was like, baby's here, all about baby, which of course it absolutely is. But if you're not in the right place and if things aren't working for you, then your baby's not going to be either. So that for me was a missed part of that kind of learning. I just wish there was either someone who was a bit more realistic about it that kind of three or four days after. I found that personally very, very traumatic. Yeah. And this is, I mean, you are really not the only guest that has talked about this in in a good way, which is that NCT, God love it. But yeah, you're totally right. Breastfeeding and just feeding. It feels like it was just sort of skipped over. Yeah. And it's a huge deal. I had to learn a huge amount because I ended up pumping for a long time and I couldn't figure out why I was finding it so hard. And it took me Googling hours and hours of Googling to figure out that, oh, it's all because of oxytocin and adrenaline. And if you're stressed, it really affects your milk. But I didn't know any of that. I didn't know a thing about that. And also, I think just uh, even more simple things like one of my friends said to me, just make sure you're drinking enough water. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, I was drinking so much water and actually that made a massive difference as well. And I, no one kind of suggested that. And I think we glaze over the sort of nutritional side of it, but you're feeding if you're trying to breastfeed and if you can, but if you can do that, obviously your nutrition is just as important. And I agree with you. I think, you know, NCT is wonderful, but you are sort of paying for a group of friends who are having a baby at the same time. And I think there's as much of it in that kind of community and, and feeling that there are other people in your situation, as much of it is that as it is about learning about the information of how to change a nappy. Do you know what I mean? It's a mixture yeah. of the two. So tell me about the run up then. So you found out you were pregnant. Management were, thankfully, were very happy about it, super supportive. So you must have your schedule planned out for like a year in advance. So they must have had to do some mega rejigging. Were there any sort of particular things that you felt really changed about those nine months about what your schedule would normally be? So my general kind of overall manager, she's amazing. And she was so aware and almost like over aware and over sensitive to to what I would be able to handle, which was great because I'm always someone who's like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, great. Fantastic. I can do all that. That's great. And actually she was kind of keeping the reins pulled in and just making sure I could cope with everything. I'd say that it was more about, okay, so where can we work up to? How pregnant was I happy to be and still be on stage? Also, I think the other thing to mention is that vocally, your voice changes when you're pregnant and then when you've had a baby. So there's a lot more to to take into consideration. If I was singing, you know, someone who is an opera singer, you potentially as well wouldn't maybe feel comfortable sort of running around stage and throwing yourself around in the later stages. But for me, it was how comfortable do I feel being on stage? I think also the thing that I felt was once I had a bump, that was all that people saw. I think that's how I felt. So the, the beginning stages were absolutely fine. And fashion now is very clever in the way that you can dress to almost sort of get away with as long as possible without looking pregnant. But I was quite proud in that sense as well. When I had a bump as such, I was like, oh, you know, it's my baby and and I want to show that. And I didn't want to do like naked pictures of my bump or anything like that. I just mean, (laughs) I, I was happy being on stage saying, I loved saying, you know, it's not just me up here anymore. There's someone here with me and, and that feels amazing. And performing can be a very, very lonely place at times, whether you're part of a company or whether you're a soloist. So it felt really lovely that there was just me and I didn't know if it was a girl or a boy, him or her up there on stage with me. It, I felt very protective. Um, but I'd say it did change for me the shift in that's all that people would see. And whether that was me doing that to myself, like we've mentioned, whether that was because of a stigma in some way, or whether that was actually happening. I just felt like that's all that people would see past a a certain point in my pregnancy. I do think that that comes from somewhere. I think you've been very gracious to say, you know, oh, it's probably just me. It's probably just me. I was racking my brains. I was like, can I think of a girl band? Just a pop group. Can I think of a girl band? 
where somebody's been pregnant and they've carried on singing. And I really, I'm not sure I can think of one. No. They're, they're, you feel like they're sort of almost hidden away to have the baby and it's kind of like hush, hush. I think there's two sides to it. Again, like we've talked about with social media. So there's someone like Beyonce who is just, it celebrates the fact that her her body is her body. She's very open about that. So therefore, I think for her having a family, having a baby, working all the time, that's that's really positive for her. But also what you mustn't forget is that that top 0.01% of the world, including someone like Beyonce, has an incredible team of people behind her, an empire, if you like, to create that supportive environment and to get her where she needs to be. So I think there's a lot of people who myself included, are attempting to be that whole team themselves and to create that environment themselves. And and it's just a lot of pressure. So it doesn't surprise me that people burrow themselves away and and want to create a nice environment for themselves to have that baby and to kind of keep it to themselves. Because I also think people, you know, you can talk about journalism in that sense, that once you show your baby or once you show that you're pregnant, you're kind of also saying, I'm okay to talk about this. I'm okay for you to then talk about it. So so it's a big decision in that sense, you know, and I and I understand why some people shy away from that. What's the alternative? The alternative is that as you say you just hide yourself away for the best part of a year or whatever. Which it is, is so from- wrong, which is so wrong because if you think about it emotionally, then you're going through the biggest shift in your life, I would say. You're going through it alone. I mean, mm. You know, we're talking yeah. alone in the sense that if you have a partner or whatever your setup is, but but you will feel, I don't know, I, I just, I think it is so hard. And I definitely underestimated that. Definitely. I glazed over a lot of things. And I don't know if that's a coping mechanism. Maybe other people do the same thing. But I definitely think I underestimated how much of a bigger shift it would be from in my life. And I always, I say this to Harry, I'm like, oh, you know, I feel like I've once I'd had Ottilie, I was sort of mourning this old person I used to be mm. and wondering when she'd come back. And I got really, really sad about that. And then I thought it's as time went on, I kind of got used to the fact that actually what my body had done was was amazing. And as I got stronger and felt more like myself as I am now and, and as a mum, I kind of found myself and thought, okay, I'm okay with this and, and try and gain more confidence. But it is definitely like mourning your old self is the best way I can put it. And this is the thing. And this is what I say to clients as well. I mean, it's very easy to yearn, you know, for the old you, whoever, whoever that was, when actually it's all about embracing this new you. And it's a mixture. You do go back to quote unquote yourself. You'll still like the same music. You'll still mm. want to dance in the same way. Like you'll be exactly the same. And I think it's often a surprise for mums that their personality just hasn't magically changed. And I think that it's just a very compounding exercise. Like, particularly if you are one of the people who's felt like they've needed to hide themselves away, I think it makes it so much worse because there is a genuine, massive identity shift that happens pre and post baby and if you feel like you've had to hide yourself away or that you've been penalized in your career as a result when our professional identity is so tied up with our personal identity it's really sad and that's literally the whole reason why I do this podcast because women are in a lot of ways taxed financially professionally on having babies when it's a couple's joint decision to have a baby the women are penalized And our professional identity is hugely tied up with who we are. And we need to improve the way that people come back to work and make it a more welcoming environment to just try and lower that tax, basically. Like we can't avoid the biological fact that women have babies, but how can we how can we make that postnatal period better? Yeah. Definitely. And I think you touch on something so important there as well. I remember feeling that sensation of oh I've got to do this and I've got to do that and why is this heavy heavy weight that I feel emotionally and physically all on me but then if Harry for example who is so involved and so amazing would offer I'd be like no (laughs) (laughs) it's this I found it so hard to try and work my way through that and and to loosen that grip that you have 
you know, that maternal instinct that is so strong to be able to also accept when people come into your world and to try and help. And again, this is a massive learning curve. And I'm sure this will happen throughout Ottilie's life as time goes on as well. And it will keep changing. But how other people do things to how you do things. And I, and I think also that's something that is different for everyone as well is that the, the the help and support that they have. Like I knew I wanted my mum to be there when I gave birth and it was my mum and Harry and Harry was really amazing about the fact that she would be there too. But she, for me, has that very kind of straightforward, you can do it kind of thing. And I knew in the throes of whatever would end up happening in terms of my labor, I knew that would be the really kind of strong advice I'd need. And I think I knew that Harry would be exactly the same but equally it would be the person that he loved going through that pain so I think for me I found it also interesting that I wanted another woman there to tell me that if that makes sense it does and my mum always says like well when you're giving birth like women need other women and I yeah. always be like yeah yeah mum whatever like <laughs> and <laughs> in that horrible way that daughters do and I totally see what she means now and you've just totally proven it as well do you not also have conversations with your mum now where you're like, I get it, mum. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, I'm there. And she's like, I know. I knew you would be one she's day. She's like, I know. It's only taken me 31 years, darling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But women do in that time and especially those early days as well. And I talk about this with other guests, but the whole concept of your village or whatever, which I sort of, I kind of love and I hate that expression because we don't live in an environment that's very well set up for the village. And we, we ingest that piece of advice, like, oh, it takes a village. And then we don't do anything because we don't accept the help exactly as you were saying earlier, like, oh, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it all by myself. And it, nobody can. That's the point. <laughs> you need other people to help. You need other women that you can have your boob out or whatever yeah be like why isn't this happening like <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> God. yes yeah it's very true so so we got to the later stages of your pregnancy yeah. and you said that your voice changed which I thought was super interesting is that because of all the hormones like relaxing hormones and also weirdly my voice felt really strong and I, I don't know the exact science behind it but yeah I mean the so all of the different hormones would will affect in a very small way your voice but also each person is quite individual for me the support with my breath control actually felt very strong and then after I'd had baby when I sang for the first time I felt very weak you know because mm -hmm. muscles had just been stretched to that point where they couldn't stretch anymore and then trying to go back I think that's where I felt the biggest change as I felt really sort of powerful singing when I was that third trimester but then actually when I was singing with a new baby, I actually felt very, very weak and had to really work on building up that breath control, especially as well when we're talking about classical music, that it, it takes a lot from you physically. So that for me was always quite a sort of scary moment to go on stage and do that sort of first performance back. I know you said that you'd sung eight weeks after giving birth, which is amazing, but any women listening will attest that there's that slightly weird period the fourth trimester where you've lost the bump but there still is a bump and your body just doesn't really feel like your own yet but you're spending so much time sitting at home feeding changing nappies not really moving around and given your work and also that love of exercise that you spoke about earlier was that something you found challenging at all yeah I just felt like my identity had been taken away I just felt like but I also felt like I didn't even have time to think about it. There is no time and, and you're sleep deprived and you're trying to do what you think is right. And you, let's face it as well, we talk about it now in the sense that taking almost minimal advice is great. But actually, when you are exhausted, when you don't know what's wrong or when your baby won't sleep or whatever it is, you'll take all the advice in the world because <laughs> you want to know, you want to figure it out. And that's just being maternal and human instinct to want to know what's wrong. And I think that's where also it's dangerous. Going back to how I felt, yeah, I did feel like I just, I just didn't really know who I was. And I didn't, as I say, didn't have time to think about it. And so I guess the way that I was trying to figure it out and still feel like me was to go, I'm going to do a gig because that's what I did before. 
I'll attempt to do it now. And I think that was potentially a bit of a, a naive decision. However, I wouldn't take it back, but it's just part of that learning curve. And if and when we have more children or, you know, if that happens, I, I would think about it slightly differently. This hindsight is a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> so after that eight week gig, did you kind of, was that the point where you took a bit of a moment and were like, mm, like I need to go back or I need to have more of a mat leave or what happened after that, after that gig? To be honest with you, I kind of took a bit of a dive and, and was struggling quite a lot to try and figure it out. I think for me, it became then about the small wins and about going out for a walk and going for a coffee and being in a public place with your baby bottle or breastfeeding, whatever it is, just, just getting used to that environment. And then it became about, I suppose, ironically, this is a very unique situation as well, that as soon as I felt like I really wanted to step up a gear and I felt strong enough to get into singing, COVID happened. So for me, it's been a bit of a weird kind of transition, but I'm sort of taking that as a blessing, like I say, in disguise that I've got this time where I can have a bit of a perspective from the performing world, if you like. I did definitely take a step back and I tried to just embrace what was happening and just baby steps. I think you really have to go back to the small things and, and those small wins that you can get when you're a new mum. I'm so sorry to hear that you say you took a bit of a dive at that time. Do you do you feel like it was the gig that just kind of made, that was the trigger for that? Or is it just the overall situation that you were in? <clears throat> I felt like I was standing still. I felt like the world was just whooshing around. And the gig was the pinnacle of that, where I felt like at that time, I was in a big room, I remember, and I'd said, you know, I'm bringing my daughter with me. She's very little. We'll need a place where I can breastfeed or, or change her, whatever. Just a bit of privacy would be great. And we were in this room with about 25 people going in and out. And I just oh had to God. get on with it. And I just felt in that moment, I was at the table facing the wall to kind of cover my boob. And mm. I just felt like this world was whizzing around and not really aware of the fact that I was just felt like I was stood still. And it visualizing that now for me is it, I think it was a very isolated and lonely place and that worries me for how other people perhaps might feel like that too at that point I was being I suppose being left behind it's a really sad way of putting it but I feel like that's the best way to describe it and again like we're talking about it then becomes about finding your new identity and and how you're going to embrace that and and how you then navigate that new world with this human that you've created that then becomes you know just the most amazing thing after I suppose that for us it was probably that first six months like when they start giving you back something I think it all gets a little clearer but but until that happens for me I felt I found it really really tough and they always say right that at the eight week point or whatever when the smiles come I think one of my friends said you really need those smiles. Like that's the point. Like that eight week mark is when you need a bit of response yeah, <laughs> from this do. little, yeah, from this little person that you've been pouring your physical self into. And the smiles are just amazing. And I think that's a really good way that you just put it when that interaction starts to happen. That can be an unbelievable lift. Definitely. To and would you say that that dive that you described did it ever kind of break into postnatal depression or did you feel like it was just kind of a temporary thing? Yeah, I think it was definitely a bit of postnatal depression. If I look back on it without sounding too kind of downbeat, there were, yeah, I think there were times where I just felt like I just, I just didn't know, I just didn't even know who I was or didn't understand what was happening. I felt like yeah, I was just sort of stuck in it. As I say, it's this thing also, I felt very, very strongly about not letting anyone else help because that would mean failure in some way in my mind, which is absolute nonsense. But at the time, you're putting so much pressure on yourself. And I think personally, this might not be true for other people, but for me personally, in my line of work, that's what I do. And that's again, actually what makes me step out on stage and perform and try and give that extra 10% and 
you know, it's because I put that pressure on myself to, to be that, but it's not the same when you're talking about being a mum and you can't approach it like your job. You can't approach it like your professional life, you know? And I think it was actually about, I've never really experienced a routine in a nine to five sense, but what really helped getting out of that place was setting myself a routine and going, okay, well, when she sleeps, even if it's for 20 minutes, even if it's for five minutes, or if it grows and it, you know, now if it's a 40 minute sleep, so whatever it is for you, that's your time. And if it's making yourself a cup of tea or if it's doing something, and I know we all feel like it's like, oh, well, actually I've got to do the washing. I've got to do this. I've got to prepare the bottles. I've got to, you know, there's this list that grows as we all know when we have those gaps, but also just give yourself that 10 minute slot whether it's just to sit on the TV and watch some, I don't know, whatever, like Love Island or just to give yourself that that space mentally, I think it's really, really important. It's so often translated into people saying, kind of unhelpfully, to be honest, sleep when the baby sleeps. Oh when my actually... God, don't even. <laughs> like, what is that about? <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but what I genuinely, I'm like... You think that every time your baby closes its eyes, it's going to die at the start. So you're like, oh my God, how on earth would you be able to sleep unless you're at that point where you are so exhausted, you fall asleep and you wake up freaking out. Like, I mean, like, it's, I hate that piece of advice so much, but I feel like a better alternative is Love Island when the baby sleeps or like just something. Scroll the gram when the baby sleeps, you know? Just do something that is completely self-centered when the baby sleeps because you spend so much of your time giving, 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 giving all the time. And I think people underestimate your need for just kind of junk. Like I needed a lot of junk, like Game of Thrones, like whatever was going, whatever. that was just yeah, mindless. Exactly. Yeah, or a treat for yourself. Oh my goodness, for if, you know, don't even think about trying to eat healthily. Like just eat what you need to eat, eat what makes you happy, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I also suffered from postnatal depression. So firstly, I want to say like how sorry I am that you went through that. And it's, I know from experience, it sucks. But I think it's so often dismissed as just, oh, it's just your hormones. And I found that very difficult to accept in my own head because I think it would have been more helpful if somebody had said, yeah, I mean, your life's just kind of been turned upside down. So yeah, that's why you're feeling sad. That's why. Yeah. And it's a British thing as well, right? I mean, you know, Americans, it's normal to go and talk to someone about how you're feeling or what's going on. But here, there's definitely still this thing about those words. And and I find it bizarre that even now with how much support there is available, you still have to seek it out or you still feel like you're kind of got to creep around to go, okay, well, maybe I do need to talk to someone or maybe this isn't maybe I need help with this or or maybe I just need to accept and be in this place and talk to whoever I can you know whatever it is for you that you need to do and however severe it is for goodness sake don't be ashamed of saying it out loud and I think also when you mention that as well when you look up these things we're all guilty of googling things especially again when you've got a newborn baby you know like (laughs) when you start feeling those feelings you can scare yourself as well and think that it's really unusual that you might feel that way and it's not it really isn't and I think it's important that people know that I know it was important for me to know that and I think you you say you know you speak really well there to to make sure people do feel that they're not alone in that sense no and they're absolutely not and again it's been a bit of a weird catharsis doing this podcast because I've had to be really open about loads of things that I never really talked about before yeah so maybe this is my therapy but the point is (laughs) how did you get yourself out of that stage do you feel fully out of it I don't feel fully out of it I feel I feel pretty pretty good like I'd say there are still times where I'll take a little dip and have to catch myself. But then also now I think there's a lot more going on in my world and in her world. So things are also shifting as well. But I think during that period where I felt very low, I remember my mum just saying to me, do you feel sad all the time? And that for me was like, my mum isn't someone to mess around with her words. And for her to open up to me and say do you feel sad all the time and and that it's okay 
gonna make me cry now god okay yeah that for me was gonna make me cry I know sorry (laughs) (laughs) but that for me was a real a, a really positive moment because it was her acceptance in the fact that I could be sad and I think that's what we need sometimes is someone to say it's okay to be to feel that way and that for me was a, a really good a really positive turning point <sighs> okay <laughs> yeah it's just I'm literally crying um, <laughs> it's just someone just our mutual friend which I didn't explain at the beginning of this episode she just checked in every day just how, how's it going just little things and she just but every day just checks in And I really, really appreciated that. And that was a huge part of, yeah, what what got me through. Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? Because sometimes it can be the person you didn't expect to be that sort of person that you've leaned on emotionally. And also they might not even know that that support that they're providing for you, they might not even be aware of, of how much it means to you. And so I think that's also something that's really important to mention is that if you are thinking about someone, yeah, drop them a message drop them a text, drop them a call. doesn't matter what it is, in what format, you know, on Instagram, on social media, whatever it is, I think it's always important. If you feel like you're thinking about that person, then you should reach out to them, definitely. Yeah. Or if you just feel like doing, you know, doing your good deed for the day, find a new mum in your list of people and just drop them a text and be like, how's it going? Yeah. God, yeah. I think so it true. makes a huge difference, huge difference. Well, I think it's really good that we're talking about this and that Obviously, there's a plethora of resources out there for anybody who's listening. But I guess my best advice is just tell people what you need, you know, whether it's the NHS, whether it's your GP, and just tell them and tell them until it's more annoying for them to ignore you than for them to just do do what you want. Um, yeah. <laughs> did you see somebody in, in the end? No, I didn't. I kind of toyed around with it. And I think that was a little bit of my own stubbornness. But also, I used exercise as well. And there's a a mum who I adore, who has two boys who trains at the same gym as me. And I started to then kind of have that confidence to take Ottilie, she would nap, we would train, she'd because my friend had also kind of got this routine down. And I was like, look, she's allowing herself to go and train. Like, can I do that? And that was my therapy was basically exerting some energy and also chatting to her through that and I think I adore her she's one of my best friends and I think we've become so close through that sort of experience and her youngest was still quite young and I don't think I'd realized that actually you know there's all these different stages and she actually was really struggling with lack of sleep and various things and so I think we kind of helped each other in that space and that for me was really important and a great relief this is another thing that you're not going to get me to shut up about now. Like <laughs> it's postnatal exercise. Why? Okay. I need to just calm down. Why is this not talked about more? Because so I had an emergency C-section and, you know, C-section's a big deal. You're cutting through seven layers of muscle, but you know what? Equally tears and episiotomies are a very big deal and you're cutting through lots of layers of muscle. And w- there's no two ways about it. It's an extremely physical process and it takes your body time to heal and get back. I went to my GP six week appointment. <laughs> oh no, and, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> and he, you're fine, Tish, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> he said, no, 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 better yet. He said, um, uh, scar okay. So didn't look at my stitches, nothing. He just said, scar okay. And I went, uh, um, yeah, like, yeah, I think so. And he said, okay, cool. And I was like, so am I clear for exercise? He was like, yeah, if you feel up to it. So I was like, if you feel up to it, well, that's given me nothing that I can rely upon. And you haven't and you, even checked me physically. Like, no. And also, if you'd had any other, any other major surgery six weeks before, they'd check you. And it honestly felt like this guy was a bit embarrassed, yeah. genuinely. I have yeah. to say, we ha- I had exactly the same when I went for my checkup. They didn't even like push, prod around, do anything. And I looked up so someone who, unfortunately, she was very pregnant, so wasn't doing her normal practice. But she's someone who does a women's health, like proper postnatal MOT checkup, which I I genuinely would say is so, so important and really worthwhile doing that. Because I know as well, it takes a lot longer than you think for your body to recover. And even like some of my friends who have got 
nine, 10 months old, she'll be like, oh, my scar really hurts if they've had an emergency C-section. Really? Yeah. And you're like, actually, you know, your body That's does. Right. Well, but yes, I did say, you know, that this is the kind of thing where if it doesn't feel right, please go and, you know, you need to ask someone, you need to check it out, push to be seen, whatever it is. It's that British thing of feeling like you're getting in the way of someone else's busy life by asking for help, I guess. <laughs> you're so right. And I remember the first, this class I went to, this mysterious class, I couldn't even stand on one leg. And I was trying to join in a gym class with Babe, like men. No. What was I doing? <laughs> and at that time, I was feeling super sad. We were going through an awful lot at home. And I just thought, this will make me feel better. And I left feeling so depressed and long story, but I ended up getting the most incredible trainer, this girl, I'm going to shout her out because she's amazing, Hayley Woodruff, who specialised in postnatal stuff. And it was my husband that was like, just do it, just go, like, this isn't right. Like, you need to speak to somebody who's an expert, just go and get it checked out. And she just kind of started my fitness journey, I guess, from there. But the point I was trying to make was that there is no personal training more personal than postnatal <laughs> personal training because I remember once we were doing a session and I was still really in the throes of my own depression and feeling really sad and this group of women came in with their babies and bless them they were just having their like fitness class with their babies there as well with somebody else and Haley said oh do you mind if they share the room with us and I was like no like no no like when we were about to finish and the babies started to, you know, were crying, doing their thing, doing, doing their normal thing. And I had a bit of a moment and I said to Haley, I was like, can we, can we just leave the room? Can um, we just go to another yeah. studio? And I sobbed. I burst into tears. I couldn't stop crying. And I was like, mm-hmm. I just need some time without a baby crying. I just need time. Yeah. So it's yeah. really important that that's okay. She never made me feel like a freak or... Yeah, but that was also clearly like a bit of a trigger for you as Mm. well. And I think that's what happens is that even if you necessarily aren't feeling really, really down and sad, but if you're still in that sort of quite heightened sense of emotional state and you're very hyper aware, things like that, I think can be a trigger and can set you off in this way. And especially like you say, if there are other things going on and it's, it's really important that people know you know, I agree with you. For me, I could just never get into like that b- baby class thing. I'm like, it's mm. one or the other. <laughs> I just, I need to either just train and get it done or I'm doing the mum thing and that is doing that. And I think it's great if you can make that work. And if that's how you can manage your time and you can get the exercise in, amazing. But if it isn't as well, don't feel bad about that. You know, if you need to get yes. out the house and, and facilitate that time for yourself, when I was going to the gym, if Ottilie slept in the car or she was asleep while we were there, or if I managed to get Harry to look after her and I went to the gym, just listening to like my own music in the car instead of white fucking noise, you know, like just being like, <laughs> being like, I'm going to put some normal music. I'm going to listen to the radio. Like, look at me. I'm going to put the window down. I think that's really important. <laughs> <laughs> there are all these different stages to being a new mum and you and I are in those different stages still now and, and that will shift again. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's just appreciating that and accepting that. And I think that's what the defining factor that makes it so hard is that every single time, every day and every week and every month, it is shifting, they're changing. So you just constantly feel like you're playing catch up. And I think that's, that's an important thing as well to, to recognise it's like the task list you'll never tick off. Like you can't, you can't, (laughs) (laughs) you can't win at being a mum. Some days I do feel like I've won if I've like, you know, (laughs) got through the day and I'm like, she's smiling, she's been fed, she's doing this, you know, we've done an activity. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. You are right. I stand corrected. There are days where you definitely feel like you're winning. There are also days where you feel like you're losing and you need you need both, like a healthy dose of both. for And a, and a healthy glass yeah. of red wine as well. For oh, sure. God. Yes. God. Yes. I could not agree with that more. Well, look, we're coming to the end. So I just want to ask you a couple of questions before we go, because unfortunately I could talk to you forever. So in your opinion, do you feel like there are things that the entertainment industry in particular can do to support new mums better and support pregnant women? Yeah, it was as simple as having talking to a female manager for me was just really made it a lot easier. 
but I just for me it was having someone there so even if you're say a management company that's you know set up by a man have someone there that is able to then talk to your clients and understand that situation and be sympathetic and empathize with how that situation might change for them during pregnancy and after birth I think that's important I also think that in general image just needs to be celebrated is the wrong word just that acceptance and I know that's a really big thing to ask but I don't know if it will ever change but I do think there's people out there who are strong-minded enough to make a stand and to be those change makers in the entertainment industry. I don't think don't think it will wholeheartedly change from being a visually important industry, but I do think that there's things that we can shift. For example, there can be more narratives within theatres and plays and the drama side of things that involve mums and you know I can't think of Mm. one can you I literally can't and I think it's they're always portrayed as a character in a meek and a weak way and I think that's that's something that we can change so I think it's shifting the perspective and just that support as well I think that's really important for record companies for management companies anyone out there is having that support whether it is speaking to another woman who is a mum, you know, just just there's enough money in those kind of places to create that for people. And I think the irony, and this goes across all businesses as well, is that the more that you support them at the beginning, give them space to work through it themselves, the more likely they are to come back. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, I'd say creating the opportunities for them to come back. I think there's this sort of will you tell us when you're ready? You're like, well, I don't, I don't know when that is, but I just, when I feel like, you know, be, be there throughout and engage that and support and think, well, actually let's, let's do those baby steps, you know, like let's do a small kind of concert. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's involve the narrative of you being a new mum into what you are now. Let's embrace it. Let's not ignore it. And last but not least, what's the one piece of advice you'd want to leave any mums who are concerned about heading back to work particularly if they're in the entertainment industry or in the arts is there any advice that you want to give them I'd say to not be afraid if you can to reach out to other mums in that industry you know I I would love it if I had more people who were like hey you know I'm having a baby and I'm a bit nervous about this and I think there is space for that to create a bit of a community I also would say that the hardest thing to do when you're in the throes of it is to to say that you're not all right and you don't feel great. And if you find that really hard, like I was mentioning before, if you can carve out those five, 10 minutes to give yourself that mindfulness, that space and whatever it is for you, I think that's really important. If you can find someone in a similar position to yourself, not every mum is in the same position. Everyone's setup's different and everyone's job is very different so I think if you can find someone who you have that parallel with I think you feel a bit of that camaraderie definitely well look Laura it's 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 been amazing to have you and I'm so grateful for you giving up your time so thank you is there anything that you want to shout about ways to find you and also your podcast because you've got a podcast right Oh, yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. That's probably the best place. It's Laura Wright Official is my handle. And then, yeah, I have a podcast called Music in My Life, which is where we talk about all the emotional connections that we have with music. Thank you so much, Laura. And have a great rest of your day. And thanks for having me. Like, I've loved this, absolutely loved it. And I recommend everyone listens to your podcast because I think it's brilliant what you're doing. Thank you. Well, everyone, that's the end. Thank you so, so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to New Leaf on wherever you get your podcast from so that you don't miss out on my next episode. Feel free to message me directly on Instagram at at newleafpodcast if you like and on at Growth if you are feeling inspired and want to find out about my personalised pre and postnatal mum coaching programmes. Have a lovely, lovely day. And if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody.